0: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense.
1: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. According to Basil Littleheart, the ultimate goal of any conflict should be a better peace. That truism has become the name of this podcast, but it raises as many questions as it answers. For what should be included in defining a better peace? The defeat of the enemy's forces is certainly a part of that, but is that enough? What role should establishing peace and justice play in our strategic planning? And why should we care about such things? Such questions have motivated the creation of the J. Sherwood McGinnis Jr. War, Peace, and Justice Project here in Carlisle. Through a series of events and discussions with a focus on the humanities, the WPJP seeks to find answers that can help both military leaders and the society they serve to understand quote, the strengths, limitations, and costs of the employment of military forces given the nature of current and future threats, close quote. As the project's description asserts, quote, how we as a nation wage war but more importantly, how we pursue peace and justice is reflective of our values and who we are as a people, or at least who we ought to be if peace with justice is the ultimate objective. Today, we are delighted to welcome two prominent retired strategic leaders, James Dubick and Sir Rupert Smith, to discuss the WPJP and their place in it. James Dubick is the chair of of the J. Sherwood McGinnis Jr. War, Peace, and Justice Project, and President and CEO of Dubick Associates. A retired Lieutenant General in the Army, he is a former Commanding General, 25th Infantry Division, and a former Commanding General, 1st U.S. Corps. Currently, General Dubick is a Senior Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War and the Institute for Land Warfare, as well as a 2021-22 George Washington Research Fellow at the Fred W. Smith National Library. General Dubik is the author of Just War Reconsidered, Strategy, Ethics, and Theory. General Sir Rupert Smith is a senior international authority on defense, security, strategy, and geopolitics. General Smith retired from the British Army on 20 January 2002. His last appointment was NATO Deputy Supreme Commander, Allied Powers Europe. He is the author of The Utility of Force, the art of war in the modern world. We're delighted to have both of them with us here today. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. So both of you are here in Carlisle for these events related to the WPJP. I want to start by asking how you became uh, connected to this organization. I'm going to start with you, General Dubik.
0: Well, uh, thanks, Ron. Uh, I think my affiliation starts several years ago when I gave a presentation here at Carlisle and at uh, the War College with Ambassador Jim Jeffrey uh, when my book was published, and at that time uh, Sherwood was present, uh, mm-hmm. and so when he and Scott and others had the idea of the symposium, they invited me uh, to participate, uh, which I agreed to, and now especially in Sherwood's honor, very very happy to to be part of the of the of the uh, not the symposium itself, but also the whole process, the year-long mm-hmm. process. Of course, you know, we were supposed to do this two years ago, but COVID intervened. It was supposed to be tightly bound into about four or six weeks, but we spread it out. And I think uh, ended up with a better product, mm-hmm. and I think one that Sherwood would be uh, would be proud of.
1: And for our audience, uh, General Dubick, who was Sherwood McGinnis?
0: Well, I mean, if you're in Carlisle, I, mean, ah. I don't need to tell you who Sherwood. He was involved in everything, former diplomat. A uh, friend to so many, a uh, sponsor of many civics projects, a uh, charitable guy, gracious guy, thoughtful guy, and uh, one you wanted to be around because he always elevated the discussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it's in his memory that I think all of us are participating. Wonderful,
1: General Smith. What what, what brought you
2: here to Carlisle for this? Um, well, I was invited, <laughs> um, but, and I became involved. Uh, not long after COVID started and we were all locked down and I got an uh, email um, asking me if I would enter a conversation about my book mm-hmm. and the contents of my book had, were fitted well and alongside that of um, General Dubix and, and then the conversation developed. Right. And then over COVID, there were fairly frequent Zoom conversations and so forth and now I'm here. i here. So both of you, of course, have
1: you know, both as practitioners and as authors and scholars, right? The, you have wrestled with these questions of uh, how we wage war, what waging war means. Uh, the United States of America uh, and our British allies in particular, right? We've been waging war almost nonstop for the last two decades. Uh, what have we
2: learned from waging those wars? Uh, um. I can't speak for America, <laughs> but I, I think to some extent, because they haven't been very successful, mm-hmm. um, we may be learning rather more negative lessons than the positive ones. And I don't think, uh, certainly in my own society, we're having anything like a deep enough uh, reflection on what, um, on what we've done, and this takes it further back into the past as mm-hmm. well. Um, that, that that's. I would like to see a much deeper conversation.
1: Is it harder uh, to get people to think about the lessons of something that goes badly? Because I think that when something goes well, people will simply assume that they just did everything
2: right and they won't bother to think yeah. about the lessons then either. Um, I think people don't think about it if they don't feel personally responsible. Uh. And one of the consequences uh, I'm now making nations like people is that we conduct our modern wars in multinational groupings mm-hmm. or in non-state groupings if you're um, ETA or ISIS or whatever. Um, and of course we join these as nations and in doing it we share the risk and we share the responsibility which is fine when uh everything's going well as soon as it isn't going well people it wasn't us mm-hmm. we didn't do that uh or whatever and so we don't go and look deep enough as to uh, the real lessons fair enough General Duber. yeah i think the
0: the last really good national conversation we had uh about war and uh, its implications and how to fight and wage it was post-world war Two, mm-hmm. uh where the professional military education system emerged uh, much like we have now where the national defense university that mixes civil and, and uh, military conversations emerged. Uh, but since then, whether we did well or poorly, it's not. If we did poorly, Vietnam, let's forget it. We're never going to do that again. Mm-hmm. Same thing in in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if we uh, do well, uh, the first Gulf War, well, we don't have to talk about it because we're going to do well. So I- I think the discussion we should have uh, uh, should be occurring in at least uh, two ways. First, the professional sphere, civil and military professionals who are associated with national security, uh, should be really talking about uh, a a national myopia, Mm -hmm. where we equate war with fighting and war with combat, and therefore... uh, when the fighting is over we think the war's over, which is part of our our national problem waging war uh, is it's separate uh, related to of course but separate from fighting that requires a special set of uh, strategic skills a special set of civil military dialogues a special capacity to integrate uh, military and non-military elements of power toward a an ultimate objective, mm-hmm. uh, fighting itself—it's—it's it's important, and it's, its study is very useful and necessary for military people for sure. But fighting is a means toward something. You men- mentioned a, a little heart in the better peace. Of course, if you look at the footnote, he he got that from Saint Augustine. So it's a long, <laughs> it's a long history goes back of a ways. better peace, and that's that's where I think we are missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, our understanding of war in its larger sense, mm-hmm. the conduct of war includes fighting, but includes waging as well. And that's the conversation we should be having. Indeed. And you raise the point about
1: um, uh, civil military relations and the, the way that civilians think about military, the military and the way the military think about civilians. For you yourself, and, and then to you, General Smith, how do you feel the relationship between the military and the broader society has changed since you were lieutenant Dubik.
0: Well, uh, I came in uh, during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. so it's, it was it's not changed a good quite time. a bit, right? Just, yeah. yeah, but you know, it's it's very interesting. So we're on the flip side of that, mm-hmm. where the military is a very respected institution, rightfully so for how we serve the nation. But the society has respect for an institution that doesn't know, mm-hmm. and that's the danger I think for uh, a democracy. Uh, And so part of the civil-military dialogue that I think this symposium helps is the exposure to the general population on what the military is and does and how it serves the nation. Mm -hmm. The other part of the civil-military dialogue, though, I think is still unhealthy, and that's the uh, senior political and uh, military uh, dialogue itself between uh, and among leaders. Because there's this false belief that all recognize is false, but is so convenient, everyone agrees to continue to believe it. Uh, and that is, look, political guys, you tell us what you want, then leave us alone, we military guys will execute. Uh, we're not interested in policy, you shouldn't be interested in how... There's nothing, there's no basis in reality for that false belief. Yet, it is one that hinders the true kind of give and take and sometimes combustible uh, yeah. argument between political and military leaders that's required to wage war well. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I see what you mean, because the, 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 the charge is then thrown at a general is too political, or, a poli- or politicians are meddling in military right. decisions, when there should be a dialogue.
0: In, in reality, the two are inter- interfaced anyway. Read any, the history of any war, and you see that uh, there's no such thing as a, a firm wall between Political, and military, at the senior levels, right?
2: General Smith, you well, explain? I'd take up that latter mm-hmm. point. in In my argument in the in the book "Utility of Force," where I'm arguing that we have a different paradigm of war to that that all our institutions um, grew up and developed to conduct, uh, and the laws and processes that we have in our capitals are predicated on that previous model and so it's people just this understanding of this interface between what i call the conflict and the confrontation now that boundary in something uh like say a operation where it's very small levels of fighting we're talking of you know small small forces and so forth then that boundary between the fighting and the confrontation is right down on the on the ground, and this is how you get this phenomena which you see people talking about of the strategic corporal. Uh, he's not being he, he's still the corporal, he's still commanding 10 men doing what the corporals are supposed to do. But because he's on this political military interface, he has a strategic political impact mm-hmm. in, in his actions, and this is so. Out with the structures that we have and the institutions that we have. then until we start to change this, how we manage this interface, I don't think we're going to improve.
1: And is this a matter of uh, the education of the of the soldier,
2: um, or of the state, or both? <laughs> L- uh, um, less of the soldier, uh, less of and the more soldier. of his employer. Uh-huh. If you if you imagine the soldier is a bricklayer, mm-hmm. then. There is a conversation ultimately with the project manager, the architect, and so forth. Uh, nobody's going to complain or tell him how to lay his bricks. But how he does that on that wall for this thing is, will be part of a discussion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's that level that we're not doing. Fair enough. I, I think,
0: like, Ron, there's another, uh, another dimension uh, to this. Uh, and and that is the unfamiliarity of uh, the, uh, at least the American people with the army that represents mm-hmm. it, the army mm-hmm. that fights on its behalf. Uh, we're a separate institution. Uh, it became much more separate than a professional army, which I really like and I hope we sustain forever. Uh, but it, this began a separation. Uh, 9-11 uh, expanded the separation. All our posts are closed. Uh, and it's difficult to get on on post, and and as civilians drive by, they wonder what's going on there. So I think this puts a a a, a rock in the rucksack of senior leaders, whether you're commanding units, or you're commanding posts, or you're commanding schools as part of the uh, professional military education. It is part of our duty, and I, I include myself as a retired uh, general. It is part of our duty as senior military leaders, to open our doors, to make ourselves transparent, to invite in uh, sets of civil leaders at every possible opportunity and encourage our subordinates to do the same uh, and to operate within that intent. Uh, Because familiarity with the military will not happen without uh, explicit direct action of the senior leaders of the military.
1: Did you find it especially difficult when you were, when you were commanding the 25th, uh, the 25th Infantry? No, no, no? I,
0: I didn't. Uh, I, I had really good examples mm-hmm. when I was a brigade commander in 10th Mountain Division, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Burnett and I had a great example in a corps commander in Tom Hill, uh, who, uh, again, explicitly directed and and charged their subordinates, me, mm-hmm. uh, to join Kiwanis Club, to mm-hmm. join r- Rotary Clubs, to meet the mayors, to meet uh, principals to meet chiefs of police, to invite them to unit parties, to participate in community affairs. And uh, so I emulated their programs as a division and and corps commander and established a a very extensive uh, uh, civil-military relationship uh, around the post that I command. Uh, I see some of that uh, going on as I travel around the army or talk to senior leaders, but I see much less uh, Than is necessary. Sure,
1: General Smith. In your experience, especially when you were at Shape, uh, what was it like dealing with the um, multinational uh, as well as the uh, as, as well as dealing with the local community? Uh, how did that work?
2: It, it makes for great complexity, mm. <laughs> um, and the danger is that you nationalize. An issue, mm. and then you can turn to the Americans or the Brits or the Canadians, and and they go and solve it. Um, that's not multinationality, though, and you're putting a lot of burden, risk, and so forth on the on that commander. Um, and uh, you you see us doing this in operations um, where we have these national fiefdoms, and it then gets extremely difficult to um, conduct business in any coherent way. Right. Um, it's, it, it, part of the problem is, um, this is, gets solved in the theater by the personalities of the commanders and we change them over too fast. Um, and so it's, it, it's quite difficult to develop this relationship. It, 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 under pressure, it builds quite quickly mm-hmm. if it's going to work at all. If it doesn't, then it'll crash very quickly. <laughs>
1: well, and, and I think about that. It's a real challenge in, in the army um, for the amount of responsibility a commander has, but that the commander knows that that responsibility is only going to last a year, two years. And then you hand it off to the, to the next person and say, you know, I this worked, this didn't good
0: luck in two years. Well, uh, of course, that's true. I mean, all uh, all my commands were two years at at the most. Uh, But the Army as a profession has developed and sustained this concept of stewardship Mm -hmm. where stewardship involves a uh, kind of reverence uh, for the past, a a gratefulness for what brought you to this position, uh, for what previous commanders had contributed, and uh, also a responsibility to the future. Mm. So as a commander, you're not just the commander of a unit, you are steward of uh, the unit and you're a steward of the profession. And I think that helps an awful lot in uh offsetting some of the short-sightedness unfortunately and i I agree with general smith on this we in operational uh terms you look at afghanistan especially iraq's a little bit different but afghanistan we we traded commanders way too often right uh and that is that creates its own instability Mm -hmm. uh and uh there's uh less of a probability of, re- of stewardship emerging in that kind of an arrangement.
1: Well, in this relationship, the stewardship is a, uh, an excellent point. And this is something that extends after you leave the service. And so um, when, you, when you both think about your work as retired general officers, um, what do you see uh, as the role of retired senior strategic leaders um, in dialogue, uh, civil military dialogue, or even in dialogue with existing commanders right Uh, douglas macarthur said to soldiers are supposed to uh, fade away but uh you gentlemen have written books you come into symposia like this how do you imagine this as uh indicative of the proper role of a retired military leader i'm not sure
2: there is a proper (laughs) i'm not sure there's a proper role for a retired anybody do you expect the retired doctor to have some or, or the lawyer or whatever um we've retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very much to do with the, the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you've got something to say as a, a citizen of your state, you have every right to say it. So in the end, I wrote a book. Um, I didn't think I had anything to say when I left the army. <laughs> it, it came a bit later. So that there, I think you can do that. Mm-hmm. And you then enter another world and, and you're very kind to call me a scholar, but it's complete nonsense. But I am I'm, uh, get involved with academia as, as a result. Well, it, it, I mean, it's funny because when, when
0: you get promoted in the in American Army, to general officer, you get this box. Okay. It shows up in your house and it has your, your general officer plate, your general officer flag, a whole bunch of general officer stationery, uh, all mm-hmm. the cool, uh, cool belt. You got your belt. Uh, but there's no return envelope for your conscience. <laughs> uh, so as a coming into general, you retain your conscience mm-hmm. and your responsibility and your stewardship for the, for the profession and then leaving. There's no box. You just leave. <laughs> and so there's no uh three-ring binder that said, here are the here's the following things what you do with. Uh and it is very much an individual uh, uh discernment of uh what role the the general might play. For myself, uh, I just wanted to contribute back to the profession that uh uh gave me so much mm-hmm. and giving back uh in terms of mentoring. Uh, other officers, like, which I continue to do, uh, educating as much as I can uh, through teaching, which I do, or writing or speaking, uh, participate in these kinds of events. And uh, I also uh, try the best I can to be uh, a role model, mm-hmm. uh, still, I would say, a nonpartisan role, role model uh, in uh, in the profession. There are others that have different interpretations of their retirement and, you know, um, I think that's all well and good. I'm kind of disappointed to think they didn't let you keep the flag that you couldn't put outside the house so that people
1: know oh, no, that you're I've home. I've done the flag.
0: It's in my basement. There's no you get a no return envelope for that either. Yeah, my sure. dad likes to look at it. I,
1: well, that's all right. I can I can totally see that. Um, so in, in in talking about the the McGinnis uh, project, right, and this idea about Discussions of social justice, right? One of the big challenges, and I was uh, uh, for military and for military education, is is how we balance the the training of our soldiers so that they can do their job as war fighters, and the education of our soldiers so that they can think about the big questions while they're fighting. Um, and how do you see, uh, so we, uh, this is a big question coming up near the end, but how do you see uh, sort of the work of, say, the, the Peace and Justice Project that wants people to think about these big questions of establishing justice? How do you see this not only for reaching a civilian audience, but as a way to help soldiers think about their larger role? in establishing peace and justice.
0: Well, I think symposiums like this uh, have a role to stimulate thought in professional military education circles. Uh, At least, again, in the United States, our professional military education is somewhat bureaucratic, is somewhat stovepiped, and is somewhat static, Mm. Uh, or at least slow to change, if if not static. And stimulating conversations like this from the outside is a great way to contribute to the renewal and the dynamism of, of professional thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think Sherwood had a had a great idea, of course, with Scott Buren and Tom and Bill uh, at his side, had a great idea uh, and had part of that in mind, mm-hmm. uh, stimulate not just the discussion in the Carlisle community and larger uh, among the civilian population, but also stimulate some ideas in the professional military education sphere.
2: Fair, General Smith, what do you think? Um, I was thinking of the examples of Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. where uh, there was in the briefing process, in the preparation for the operation, and because it went on so long, this covered uh, whole careers of some of NCOs and officers. Um, There was a general understanding of what you might call the moral point, the the philosophical point of right and wrong and so forth and that that we assumed and that assumption was safe and that that people would recognize what was right and wrong. Um, That comes out of the society, the education system and so forth. there wasn't much understanding, and this was, I think, uh, a commentary on our uh, the country's educational system, of the uh, civic process of of how this was managed in a in a, a in its way. Um, whether that's got better in the educational system, I don't know. Um, I suspect not. And you would often have to explain. And then you relied on the education of the officers that they knew it, and they could explain that this was um so as how it should be um it, it the politics of the whole of theater and so forth was briefed all the time mm-hmm. and and we wanted everyone to understand not to take sides but to understand what the the issues were um and there was never any great difficulty, I, I, I recall, getting people to understand it. Uh, but it was a necessary scene setting, if you like, so that the context of everything they was doing were, was mm-hmm. understood.
1: And so education is this combination of uh, the the particular information you're trying to share, but also encouraging habits of mind yes. so that people can approach that new information. Yes, right? If I could add Please. one
2: point, Do, one of the characteristics of the operation is that the soldier was acting, in a legal sense, as a citizen in support of the constable. So he had to understand the basic law in which, within which he was operating. And of course, by making the operation being conducted as supporting the civil power, you you didn't replace the civil power. He didn't. He he, he had he was responsible for. The shots he fired, and and so on and so forth. That mm-hmm. that that concentrated everyone's mind really quite well. I could see that.
1: Well, and and so we're we're just about at the end. But uh, I uh, I want to ask you, uh, General Dubik, as the as the chair of the uh, of the uh, project. Um, what what do you see going forward? Will there be will there be further events? Will there be further? Um, uh- oh, uh,
0: absolutely. So the events kind of pause for the holiday season, but to mm-hmm. uh, pick back up in January with uh, several uh, several forums, each one uh, done twice so that we can reach people that you know can't make it in one day or another and they'll the the first phase the first year of the symposium will end around uh, may with another uh, set of uh, of activities and then uh, we'll go into uh, phase two of the project uh, and that is to uh, figure out you know what's the next way in which we can uh, stimulate civil military dialogue? What's the next way in which uh, we can help educate not uh, just American citizens, but help uh, stimulate the professional military education system as well? Uh, The pandemic was actually a boon in in retrospect, uh, forcing us to uh, think differently about ways symposium are are held. And as a result, uh, we've been able to engage more people over more subjects over more time and i think rather than a concentrated discussion a continual discussion Mm -hmm. uh, which we think will have a higher higher effect but we'll go into the standard aar uh, (laughs) mode in uh, may and june and then you know take actions and the next steps
1: and if and if people want to know more about the project they can go to the website warpeacejustice.org
0: absolutely all right yep.
1: thank you general no, James thank you thank you general sir rupert smith for joining us here on a better Peace uh, to talk about your work with the j sherwood mcginnis jr war peace and justice project thank you Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Let us know what you think. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice. And once you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how more people can find out about us. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you to future conversations. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary.